you know, again, we don't know much about the Magi and, and about, we don't really know how much they knew about Jesus and who he ultimately would become, um, but they knew enough to understand that Jesus was gonna be somebody who was revolutionary. They knew that he was like a significant person. And so while this may seem like an odd baby gift, it was, it was really meant to be symbolic of the role that Jesus would play as a prophet um, who would say and do things throughout his life, throughout his ministry that would create tension, ultimately leading to his death. It's, it's a gift uh, symbolic of his death on the cross. And this is, this is really what their prediction is in this, in this story. As they give myrrh, they're saying, hey, anyone destined to be a prophet, priest, and a king in this cultural environment is gonna have to confront a lot of stress, <laughs> a lot of pain, and a lot of death. The three gifts are acknowledging really the three offices of the Messiah. Scripture tells us prophet, priest, and king. Jesus would come and he would be the prophet, priest, and king. Hey, we are in uh, week three of our uh, Christmas series. And um, uh, it's called the Three Gifts of Christmas. And we've been slowly unpacking uh, these three gifts that the Magi bring to Jesus in the classic Christmas story. Each week, kind of looking at, at, um, at each of them um, in detail, trying to better understand what these three gifts mean and what they really tell us about uh, who Jesus is. Because typically when you give someone a gift, uh, it's an indication of how you see them or like who you think they are. I mentioned in week one that, you know, if you give somebody jewelry, that's the kind of gift that says something uh, about, about, you know, what you think of that person. But, you know, so, so does a, a can of mixed nuts too, right? Like, you know, you give them that, it's like, hey, you know, you're, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're a little lower on the list. So um, what we're learning in this series is that each of these gifts that the Magi bring to Jesus indicates something about who he really is. Right, so week one we talked about gold and how this gift really indicated that they saw Jesus as a king. Um, and then last week we talked about frankincense and how this type of gift indicated that they saw Jesus as a type of priest, sort of a divine go-between. And this week, uh, you guessed it, right, we're gonna talk about myrrh uh, and, and specifically how the Magi presenting the gift of myrrh communicated that they really saw Jesus as this sort of type of revolutionary prophet someone who would ultimately die for the things that he said. And uh, so the title of my message this morning, uh, if you're following along, is uh, Born to Die. Born to Die. I wonder um, if you've ever gotten a gift uh, that felt like someone was trying to tell you something you didn't want to hear. You ever gotten a gift like that? You know, like, like you see this gift, it's got your name on it, you're all excited, you know, uh, ready to open it up, and, and uh, as soon as you open it, there's all of this disappointment because... Uh, the gift said something about you that you didn't want to know, said something about you uh, that you didn't want to talk about or admit, or maybe even something about you that you didn't believe, and, and now you're like frustrated, disappointed, you're like, what is going on here? Um, and so to be clear, like it was a gift that, that, that was not something that you asked for, wasn't on your list, wasn't something that you were even dropping uh, hints about. In fact, the gift is really a hint from them that they're dropping um, that you, you don't want to receive. So, so for instance, you know, Christmas comes, you open up a gift, and in it is a note that tells you to go to the other room, and there's a treadmill, you know? Uh, or, or maybe you open up a pair of running shoes, and you're thinking, like, like, hold on, what is going on here? Like, tell me the truth. Like, what are you trying to say? 
you start feeling insecure because you look down and there's a plate of cookies in your lap and you're like, uh, I, I was just having a good morning and now, now I'm pretty insecure here. Or maybe you open up a card and thinking that there's going to be a bunch of cash, but instead there's a sub- subscription inside it to Jenny Craig and you're thinking, what, what, what is happening here? There's this confused look on your face. Um, and, they're, and they're like, well, didn't you say you want? You're like, no, 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 I, I did not say that I wanted this uh, at any point. Um, maybe you open up a box, you're excited uh, to tear into this gift, and you find in it is a, uh, a bottle of like Listerine mouthwash and a tongue scraper, uh, you know, uh, and you're like, okay, uh, like what are, you trying to, what are you trying to communicate here? You know, you're, it feels like you're, there's something you want to say. Or you open it up, uh, this gift and, and all this excitement, uh, only to discover that it's a pack of like um, breathe right nasal strips, you know, uh, you know, which help with snoring, and then and maybe a gift certificate for a sleep study. And you're going, man, like, like this, what is happening right now? I want to know what you guys are talking about behind my back, you know. Um, or maybe you open up a gift only to find it's like an insulting cookbook. And, and you're confused because you do all the cooking, and they're like, I just, I just kind of thought this would help, you know. And... Um, and so, you know, I think that, that it is more common than we want to admit that, that uh, gifts are given in a way to communicate something that we, we really don't want to hear. Uh, clothes that are like two sizes too small. You're like, hey, like, pretty obvious I'm not a medium. You know, like, what is going on here? Um, and so, by the way, if you have plans to give these kinds of gifts uh, this Christmas, like, please don't. Um, I want you to have a merry Christmas. And and these gifts are a surefire way to have the exact opposite experience for sure. And, uh, because here's why. Passive-aggressive gift-giving is a really bad idea. Really bad idea. Sometimes, but sometimes, you know, the motive behind gifts like these is, just, is, is that it's hard to give people bad news, you know? Like, like there's some things you want to communicate. You don't really know how to say it. And so you're like, here, I'll just, I'll just couple it with kindness. And um, it, it soften the blow, you know, drop hints. Um, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it severely backfires, you know? Um, and here's why. A passive-aggressive gift almost always backfires. It's because of this right here, if you're taking notes. It can be hard to emotionally recover when an unexpected gift becomes an unwanted observation. Like, I didn't know that gift was coming. That's cool. Awesome. You thought of me. <laughs> like, wow. It means a lot. And then you're like, whoa, hold on. Like, hold on. Like, I didn't want a Peloton. Like, I, you could have used that money differently, you know, or whatever. Um, Especially when this observation is about you, right? You're going like, man, what is going on? And so can we all at least just agree that, that these are not the kinds of gifts that we're usually looking for, right? For someone to give us a gift with an unwanted observation about ourselves, okay? So the reason I bring this up is because, you know, in Matthew 2, this is sort of what the Magi are doing. Um, we know the story of the Magi in Matthew 2. It's the only place in the Bible that, that really talks about this. Uh, there's two, two places uh, both Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel that mention the birth narrative of Jesus, but you know, Matthew is the only one who, who mentions this, this particular part of the story of the wise men or the magi. And so they are from the east. Uh, we don't know a ton about them, but they travel this long distance because they see the star in the sky. And they know that they know because they, they studied the skies. They believe that, that uh, uh, news about important people was like written in the skies. They, they were very mysterious, they were very uh, superstitious. Um, very, very spiritual people, and so they travel this great distance to Jerusalem. They come to uh, the palace of King Herod, and they simply ask him, you know, where is the child who was born king of the Jews? Pretty significant detail because uh, 
Herod is the king of the Jews at the time, but he's not the born king of the Jews. He's the appointed king of the Jews by Rome. And everybody in Jerusalem and throughout all of Israel knew that Herod was not the rightful king, that he had been handpicked to be there. And now all of a sudden these wise men from the east that Herod doesn't know, has never met, are asking where the real king is. This is kind of a huge story. Uh, when, you, when you consider like the political backdrop and everything going on uh, here. And so uh, you know, I bring up this idea of like getting a gift that, that you really would rather not get or a gift that has a hidden message because this is really what goes on in this story. The wise men uh, meet with Herod and then they, they find out that Bethlehem is the place and they, they follow this star to Bethlehem. And uh, every single gift that the, that the Magi bring to Jesus, it's essentially like a statement piece, right? Communicating something that they see about Jesus. You know, who they see Jesus becoming. And the last gift, in particular, the gift of myrrh, communicates something I feel that no one really wants to hear. It's a very odd gift. It says in uh, Matthew 2.11 that on coming to the house, they see the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of frankincense and of myrrh. So what in the world is myrrh? Okay, so let me give you just, just some, some foundational sort of baseline understanding. Myrrh was basically a, a, a very potent, yellow, fragrant, oily, sap-like resin. Comes out of cuts in the bark of a small thorny tree or plant, which I could not pronounce, so I just said tree or plant. Uh, uh, rare, very rare, very expensive in the ancient world. Let me give you uh, the three primary purposes, if you can throw that up there. The three primary purposes for myrrh in the ancient world was, was number one, you would use uh, myrrh to calm stomach ulcers, right? Dealing with like anxiety, worry, panic, all those kinds of things. Uh, it was also used to numb severe pain uh, and also, um, good news, uh, to embalm the dead. So, so this was basically um, the three primary purposes, why someone would possess myrrh, why they would use it. Um, so, so I want you just to kind of leave that up there for a minute and just imagine for a minute that you receive this gift from someone. Okay, You know full well that these are the three purposes that myrrh is used for. Like, what do you do in that moment? You get a gift like this. Like, wouldn't part of you be wondering, like, why are you giving me this gift? And maybe a better question is, why are you giving this to my baby? You know, like, like what? This is, like, very weird and, and almost inappropriate. Like, are you telling me that I should expect to experience a lot of stress in my life? Right? Are you telling me that I should, I should expect to experience a lot of pain in my life or that some, somehow here in the, in the near future I'm, there, there's going to be death around us of some sort? And so can you imagine Mary and, and Joseph opening the first two gifts and starting to feel excited about the third? Like, hey, you know, like this is going pretty, pretty well for us, only to perhaps feel some level of disappointment and confusion as to why the Magi would give Jesus a gift like this. Like, what? What are you trying to say? And I just look at the story, and I wonder if Mary and Joseph, like, wanted to ask the Magi this question. Like, like why, why are you giving this gift to us? Uh, to which the Magi would have responded that the reason why they gave Jesus the gift of myrrh was really for all of its uses. Like, all of it. Basically, they're saying, you're going to need this. You're going to need this. So think of the confusion. Mary and Joseph, right? They had to be thinking, what a messed up baby shower gift. You know, like you have to be thinking that. Like I was down for some gold, man. Like thank you. Like I, I'll take some more 
gold. Uh, the frankincense was a little weird, but at least it smelled good. But then you pull out the medical grade embalming fluid and you completely lost me. You know what I mean? Like, like what are we doing here right now? So by giving, look, by giving gold, frankincense, and myrrh, a very, very specific message is being sent from the Magi in this moment. And, 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 and that is this, that, that the Magi had become convinced that baby Jesus would grow to become a king and some type of priest, but also that he would eventually be killed by people who would hate him. The Magi are telling Jesus' parents that the baby was born to die. That's what they're saying here. That's what this, that's what this gift means. I mean, like, right? I mean, I don't know what some equivalent gifts could be, like, at a baby shower. I mean, could it be, like, like um, here's a gift certificate for, like, like a coffin? I mean, like, I don't, know, I don't know what you could give that would be more inappropriate or strange to give in that moment. It's a difficult thing to hear from a complete stranger about your baby. Would you all agree? And, and you know, again, we don't know much about the Magi and, and about, we don't really know how much they knew about Jesus and who he ultimately would become um, but they knew enough to understand that Jesus was going to be somebody who was revolutionary. They knew that he was like a significant person. And so while this may seem like an odd baby gift, it was, it was really meant to be symbolic of the role that Jesus would play as a prophet um, who would say and do things throughout his life, throughout his ministry that would create tension, ultimately leading to his death. It, it's a gift uh, symbolic of his death on the cross for the sins of the world. In fact, we know that, um, that, that Jesus' death on the cross was foretold, that, that in, in fact, Revelation chapter 13, uh, in speaking of Jesus, John writes these words, and he says, the lamb, Jesus, that was slain from the creation of the world. Other translations say from the foundations of the world, meaning this wasn't just like, a, um, uh, like, like an afterthought, like, like, oh man, everybody sinned, what are we going to do now? Like, like this, was, this, was, this was like for a forethought, like, they, like we are um, doing this. Jesus understood his role, his place in, in, in history as the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. In fact, Isaiah writes 700 years before Jesus would even be born that, uh, that by his wounds or by his stripes, we find healing. So the Magi are communicating with these gifts that they could tell that this child was marked by greatness. They just knew, you know, like, like somehow they knew. I think it was probably a, a supernatural thing going on here. God was obviously using these, these uh, really pagan spiritual people. They, they were not followers of Yahweh, um, and, and yet they were used in the story. Is that fascinating? And, and so they're, somehow they're being moved by God on this journey to meet Jesus, and they're, they're communicating that, that, hey, this child is marked for greatness. He's gonna have a ton of influence. He's gonna make an impact but they're also communicating through this third gift that, that Jesus would also pay a price for his influence and for his impact with his life. And it's as if they want Mary and Joseph to know that all of that right now, at the beginning, like, don't, hey, no surprises, right? Spoiler alert, like, like he's gonna die. And so just imagine, imagine this, right? Like, like, Put yourself in the scene. I always try to do that in the Bible. You know, like I try, to, I try to insert myself into the story like I'm a fly on the wall or I'm like a participant. And I'm thinking, you know, like, okay, so the Magi, they come here. They, you know, this is probably within two years of Jesus' birth. 
if you, if you didn't know, the Magi were not actually at the manger scene. You know, um, in, the, in the classic nativity that we see, we always see the wise men, but they weren't actually there. Um, sometime within the first two years of Jesus' life, they came to the house, uh, not, to the, not to the manger like the shepherds did. So the Magi are here at this house. Jesus is, is he's not probably like a tiny little baby, I and mean, he could be a toddler. He's, he's young, though. And they, they hand over this treasure chest, and it's filled with myrrh. So imagine, right? And it's as if they're saying this to, to Mary and Joseph. Here, look at this thought. It's as if they're saying, like, we know you don't want this, but trust us, you're going to need it. We know this isn't, like, like, the best gift. We actually kind of saved it for the last because figured, like, hey, you know, we'd lead with the good stuff. But, but, but even though you don't want it, you're going to need this. And myrrh would have been a pretty valid gift if the Magi believed that Jesus would ultimately grow up to become a revolutionary. Because historically, revolutionaries didn't do so well against Rome. I don't know if you, if you, if you knew that Rome was pretty, uh, pretty ruthless. And, and so we know this now for the same reason that they knew this then, right? That, that because, because Jesus was not the first sort of Messiah-type figure to rise up and try to, um, you know, revolt or, or overthrow Rome. In fact, all throughout their history, there was many people who would rise up because, because you know, the, the Jews had these ancient prophecies foretelling of a, of a coming Messiah. One day, someday, this deliverer would come and would rescue them from all of the oppression that they have experienced for, you know, thousands of years. And so throughout their history, there would be different men, different individuals who would rise up and sort of take that claim only to, to eventually meet their demise, Right? So they, they would maybe have some success for a minute, like some popularity, and they would draw a crowd, but ultimately, like, they would come up against the force of Rome, and Rome always won out. Um, so Jesus isn't the first Messiah figure to rise up amongst the Jews um, for the purpose of trying to build a different kind of kingdom in the middle of the Roman Empire. And history tells us that things did not go well for these revolutionary Messiah-type figures two of which are actually mentioned in the book of Acts. I don't know if you understood this, but uh, I'll just give you two. Uh, there's many even who aren't mentioned in the Bible that we just know throughout history. But in Acts 5, uh, 36, uh, Luke writes this, and he says, Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and his followers were scattered. So what's going on here in Acts 5 is, is basically these, these religious leaders are concerned about the church that is, that is beginning to form in the book of Acts. And they're thinking about like just snuffing it out while it's, while it's just getting started. And, and uh, they're talking about killing them and doing all these things. Well, uh, this, this, this man, Gamaliel, he, he, he sort of rises up. He says, hey, look, if this is real, if what's going on with these guys is real, if this is really God, it's going to last. If, if it's not God, then what's going to happen to them is the same thing that happened to Theodos and Judas the Galilean, right? They, eventually, it's just going to fall apart, and, and God is not going to bless it. And so uh, what we see in these two men in Acts 5 is, is that they were revolutionaries. These were guys who claimed really to be Messiah-type figures. We're going to lead the Jews to victory over Rome. Well, Theodos what we know in history is that he led all of these guerrilla attacks against Rome. He was able to attract a decent-sized following, uh, but then eventually he was captured by the Roman soldiers because he had so many supporters uh, who were willing to fight and die with him. They took him to the public square, chopped his head off in front of the onlookers, put his head on a pole, and then paraded it 
throughout Jerusalem as a warning to the people to not even think about trying to revolt against Rome. Like, that's a deterrent, right? I, I, yeah, message loud and clear. So um, then Judas the Galilean, he leads this resistance against the census and taxes that were imposed by a man named Quirinius. You may remember that name. It's somewhat familiar uh, because we read that at the beginning of Luke's gospel because um, Quirinius is the one who requires the census and bring, that brings Mary and Joseph ultimately to Bethlehem. Right? He's mentioned there along with Caesar Augustus in the opening uh, few words in, math, in uh, Luke's gospel. Uh, Judas the Galilean, he tries to stir up a revolt against Rome by telling people that if they, if they comply with the demands of Rome, they're gonna be sinning against God, and if they sin against God, that he personally will punish them for God as the proverbial like tip of the spear. And so he would punish them by you know, burning their houses to the ground and stealing all their livestock. Because like, you're sinning against God, you're complying with Rome. And so this is what Judas the Galilean did to his own people to help them become more holy and more righteous until he was eventually captured and crucified on a hill by the Roman general Tiberius. Okay, that's just two. There's many. Many different Messiah-type figures would rise up at some point to try to overthrow Rome. Now, the reason why this matters um, is because these guys who would rise up, uh, these Messiah-type people, the more follow of a following they would gather, the more people would start to just um, view them as like a prophet, a revolutionary, someone who is bringing about change. And the reason why this matters to our story is because, is because of this thought right here, that when the Magi give myrrh to Jesus, they're actually predicting that he will be this type of revolutionary, right? Which would have, look, which would have conjured up some pretty vivid images in his parents' mind about what was going to eventually happen to their son. Like, whoa, 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 like you're saying... You're saying, okay, because like Judas, Judas the Galilean, I mean, during the days of the census, right, which is happening right there at Jesus' birth, so they're going, hold on, like, like this is what's going to happen? This is what it's going to look like? And the interesting thing about this story is that the Magi, they're actually right in their prediction. Because this is exactly who Jesus grows up to be. He challenges religious people and their cultural assumptions, Right? He challenges the status quo. In Matthew 23, where we read about the seven different woes, we see uh, you know, Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. He calls them like a brood of vipers. That's, that's a pretty cool uh, insult. But he, he, he rebukes them. He, he calls them whitewashed tombs. In other words, like what he's saying, he says, you look nice and shiny on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. He says, you're like, a, you're like a cup that on the outside is clean, but on the inside is still all dirty. You don't take time to clean the inside. All you're doing is taking time to clean the outside. So he, so he, he challenges the status quo. He pushes people to see the real cause of their actions, how their lives are going to uh, always travel in the direction of their thoughts, just as much as in the direction of their, of, the, of, their, of their actions, right? Like he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you, you know, like it's not just about what you do. It's also about what you think. It's about what goes on in your mind just as much as it is what goes on in your behavior and in your actions. He tells his followers many, many times that he wasn't sanctioned by the establishment. He wasn't sanctioned by the system. And that if they needed someone who had all the credentials or all the degrees or even a place to live, that that's not him. That's not him. They're gonna have to find somebody else. And he regularly, regularly helps 
the people whom those in power consistently ignored. His actions, his teachings, and way of living always stirred up some level of controversy because he gave voice to the silenced, he healed the sick, he valued the outcast, and always challenged those who had just let themselves get comfortable. And so, he thought, when we fast forward from his birth to his life and ministry, there is no question that Jesus becomes a prophet who leads a different type of revolution. We, we just get this. We know this. In fact, you don't have to be a Christian to acknowledge this, right? I mean, Jews would acknowledge that Jesus was a good teacher, right? That he was, he was a type of revolutionary figure. Uh, Muslims would, 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 would think of Jesus as a, a very respected prophet in their, in their faith, I mean, so, so you don't have to be a Christian to acknowledge he, he grew up, he became this revolutionary type figure. And so imagine that night, like, like myrrh is being gifted, it's gifted to you. It's, it's really foretelling, it's predicting the kind of life that Jesus is gonna live. And Mary and Joseph have no way at that time of really knowing what all this is gonna mean. They have no way of really knowing as these strangers show up and give them these gifts the implications, right? They have, they have this kind of vague picture. They understand we're gonna name him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sin, but they have no real clue of what the journey is actually gonna look like. And the Magi, were the, like I said, they were like these spiritual people and they were thought to be able to predict the future. Um, you know, they, they, were, they were people who would interpret dreams. I mean, that was like their, their main skill, uh, that was most valued amongst the Magi was dream interpretation. And, and that, that in many ways helped, helped uh, you know, rulers know what was gonna happen next. So they were thought to be able to predict the future. And this is, this is really what their prediction is in this, in this story. As they give myrrh, they're saying, hey, anyone destined to be a prophet, priest, and a king in this cultural environment is gonna have to confront a lot of stress, <laughs> a lot of pain, and a lot of death. The three gifts are acknowledging really the three offices of the Messiah that scripture tells us, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus would come and he would be the prophet, priest, and king. And while Mary and Joseph are trying to process what has just happened, here's the very next thing that happens in verse 13. Matthew 2, 13 says, when they had gone, and so the Magi have left, when they have gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I, I tell you, for Herod is gonna search for the child to kill him. So again, Magi have left. Mary and Joseph are still processing what has happened, this terrible you know, baby shower gift and what all this means, probably wondering to themselves, how accurate could the Magi really be? Like, like I mean, are we really gonna like take everything they said verbatim? And then suddenly, shortly after, one night, Joseph has a dream, tells it, communicating that there are people coming to try to kill Jesus. And so Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they take off to Egypt. They, try, they go there to keep Jesus safe uh, from those who want him dead. And, and Mary and Joseph have to be wondering to themselves in that moment, like, okay, so exactly how soon, exactly how soon are we gonna need to use this myrrh? You know, like, like wow, like, I guess we did need it after all. So again, picture it. Everyone leaves, leaves Bethlehem to go in their separate directions. Mary, Joseph, Jesus, they leave for Egypt. The Magi head back to their homeland. And I imagine everyone wondering, like, like, as they're going their separate ways, what kind of revolution is Jesus ultimately gonna lead? 
like, what? Like, what? Yeah, I get it, but like, what is it gonna really look like? It's a question that wouldn't even begin to be answered for 30 years when Jesus finally starts his ministry. But what we know now is that Jesus was a revolutionary unlike any other. Amen? In fact, this is the kind of revolutionary he was, if you're taking notes. Instead of slaying his enemies, Jesus sympathized with them and sacrificed for them. He told his followers to love everyone the way he loved them. He claimed the opposition he came to overthrow isn't the political oppression over us, but the selfishness in us. That's what Jesus came to do. And that's why he wasn't received the way you would think he should have been received because people were waiting for a political figure to rise up and overthrow Rome. Jesus didn't come to overthrow Rome. Jesus came to overthrow death and sin and the grave. Right? Jesus came to, to free people from a type of oppression that they weren't really being interested in being freed from. On their mind was oppression from Rome who had ac- occupied Israel, and Jesus came to do something that no one was really expecting and no one was really waiting for. He was the Messiah for sure, but he wasn't the Messiah that they were waiting for. Jesus was convinced that his revolution wasn't to free people from the oppression of Rome, but from the oppression of sin and shame and death, that this revolution ultimately is going to save the world. Do you know what, you know what Jesus also did in his life? He also made it really clear that to be a part of this revolution, it would come at a price, right? Like he did come to bring a revolution, but like if you wanted to be a part of it, there was a cost associated with it. In fact, Matthew 16, Jesus' words, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Those are interesting words, aren't they? Like, what what is really going on here? Let me decode these verses for you in light of Christmas and in light of these three gifts we see the Magi bring. Jesus is basically saying this. Hey, if you want to follow the true Messiah, you're going to want to pack some myrrh because it's going to be a rocky road. It's not an easy path. But the reason why you do this is because the reward is worth everything that we're after. You can see yourself more accurately, become more like Christ, find true fulfillment. But in order to get there, Jesus is saying you have to go through the cross, and not just the cross that Jesus died on, but the cross you're to die on as well. In other words, listen to me, in other words, not only was Jesus born to die, we are also born to die, to lay down our life as well. Now, this is very difficult for us to comprehend in some ways because we get that Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to come after me, fine, but you got to take up your cross just like I did. And we get these images in our head maybe of Jesus traveling down like the Via Della Rosa. He's, he's you know, he's, he's, he's uh, got the, the cross on his back and he's struggling to get outside the city gates. And finally, he goes up this wall, or, or I'm sorry, this hill of Calvary and, and all, of, all of that. You know, we get this image. Okay, so if I'm going to follow Jesus, I got to do something like that. I got to take this cross on my back. But, but we, kinda, we kind of are lost there, right? Like, like how do I actually practically do that? What does that even mean? Does that mean I just got to like suffer and suffer and suffer? I, I, think, I think of it this way, um, if you're taking notes, that the ticket to take up our cross means this, that Jesus is challenging me to lovingly, lovingly engage what I most want to avoid. 
This is what it means to take up our cross. To engage what we most want to avoid. And I wonder what this might be for you. You know? Because for some people, like, it's, it's just simply, it comes down to, like, a bad habit. You know, it comes down to dealing with the same habit, the same tendency, the same addiction for so long. For some people, it's like, it's, it's a heart of unforgiveness. Just can't, can't let it go. Can't release people from, from what they have done to you. And maybe God is nudging you to let go of something and, and, and the bitterness that's just compounding and growing in your heart. For some people, it comes down to like a strained relationship. Right? It's, it's engaging what you most want to avoid. It, it, it comes down to, you know, this, 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 maybe this refusal to give and be generous or this refusal to serve. Like, I think this is what it means to take up the cross. For sure, it's like it's, it's not living into everything our flesh desires. For sure, it's rejecting the flesh and it's living Christ-like. There is the self-denial, but part of that self-denial is, is actually engaging the things we'd rather not talk about, engaging the things we wish weren't there, engaging the things we wish weren't true about us. And when you look at the gift of salvation, which it is a gift, right? So we're gonna talk about the gift of Christmas, right? So so the gift of salvation, meaning this is something you did, not, uh, you did not earn. It was given to you. But the gift of salvation, kind of like the gift of myrrh, it's almost like bad news with a bow on it. Like Because it's great news, it's good for you, you need it, but it's not just like this, this nice shiny gift that has no implications now to like the rest of your life. The gift of salvation is free. It's free for you and it's free for me, but with it comes a way of life, a lifestyle. You know that Jesus never really talked about salvation as like a prayer that you pray. He talked about it really as a way that you live. You see, sometimes we read the Apostle Paul in, in Romans chapter 10 where he says, you know, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we reduce salvation down to something just so simple which, because it is, it's a gift. But it's really incredibly complex because the walkout of that salvation is something Jesus says here, you gotta take up your cross now and you gotta follow me. That's how you walk it out. And very few of us really want to do that. It's like this, it's like this observation that we'd rather not hear about ourselves. Like Jesus is saying, hey, I got, a, I got a gift for you. I want you to open it up. And you're like, oh, awesome, awesome, awesome. But then there's like some other like fine print that's like, oh, I gotta actually like live differently now. I gotta actually follow Jesus with my life. So here's my question to you. You can look at this uh, on the screen. What if, what if someone gets you something you weren't asking for this season? What if, it, what if it's the gift of sudden self-awareness? <laughs> And as a result, you unwrap an unwanted observation that requires you to act on what you'd rather avoid. Like, what if? But if it's like, what if you got blessed with some sudden self-awareness and you saw yourself like, no blind spots, you actually saw you how God sees you and you're going like, ah, I didn't, I didn't want to know that about me. I didn't want to admit that about me. I didn't want to have to address that. I'd rather pretend like that's not there. Like, what, what, what would... You do, and like when you think about it, like this is sort of what happens to Mary and Joseph, right? They unwrap the myrrh and realize 
something is coming out in the future that they would have to deal with in order to live out their destiny, and they would prefer to not. And so the gift of myrrh is like this ancient way of really saying, hey, you got to buckle up because it's going to be a bumpy ride. And I wonder what you will do if and when this happens to you this Christmas. Because if we really want to know ourselves, if we really want to see ourselves like God sees us so that things can shift and change in our life, like, like, like the way only he can do it, that gift of self-awareness is, 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 is kind of necessary. And so then do we just ignore it? Or do we curse someone for their rudeness? Like, how dare you? How dare you give me a treadmill for Christmas? Do you make excuses? Like, like man, it's not that big a deal. Like, and start comparing yourself to other people. Like, I know I got this thing in me. I know I'm, I know I'm dealing with unforgiveness, but look, so are they. Or I know I've got bitterness, sure, but like, it's not as bad as theirs. And we start comparing ourselves. Like, do we do that? Do we continue to live in sort of denial? Like, like refusing to actually let ourselves see some of the brokenness and the pain that exists inside of us. Pretending like it's really not there. Looking into a mirror but not seeing our actual reflection, seeing like a false projection, a false image of who we really are and what we really carry and what our life really looks like. Or do you pack some myrrh for the journey and ask God to help you face yourself? God, I know I don't have it all together and I know that there's some things in here that aren't, aren't great. And I need you to help me overcome and break free and get rid of these things. And so, you know, there is a Old Testament writer who frames it this way in a really blunt and interesting way. In Proverbs 12.1, he says, uh, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. I love it. I love it. I mean, just look at those words. Let me give you, let me give you like a paraphrase. In light of the Christmas story, this is, this is how it could, it could read. You can throw it up there. Only idiots get upset when they're given myrrh. And it's sort of like this wisdom writer's way of saying, hey, you know, not everyone who gives you myrrh is out to get you. <laughs> Even if they are, you can still benefit from it, but, but only if you really leverage it wisely this wisdom writer's way of saying like, hey man, eventually someone's gonna hand you myrrh, something you didn't ask for. What are you gonna do with it? What do you do when someone tells you to hold out your hand because you're gonna need this for the road ahead? Like, what do you do then? What do you do then? Let me just give you this thought as we close. You see, how you respond to the uncomfortable observations about your life that myrrh always presents you with is what determines how Christ-like you become. 
So, right, the gift of self-awareness. Like, who am I really? Not who I'm pretending to be or who I project or who I let people see me as, but who am I really? And the way I respond to these uncomfortable observations really determines how Christ-like I become. Christ-likeness isn't pretending to have it all figured out. Christ-likeness isn't, isn't snapping a good picture for social media with your Bible open in your coffee cup. Christ-likeness is living this thing out the right way with our cross on our back. Saying, look, like it's not my life anymore. I've given it over. And whatever you ask of me, I will give it away gladly. I will lovingly confront what I most want to avoid. You know that there's been times in my life where I've been forced to confront things in my life. There's a difference between being forced to do something and lovingly doing something. And when I, when I am forced to confront issues in my life, it's usually because I'm not the one that's, that's, that's uh, requiring me to confront those things. Usually somebody else is. But taking up my cross is when I'm like, man, God, I just, I'm so caught up in you. Man, I just, I just, I just, I'm so amazed with who you are and your love for me. And I, I trust that your road ahead for me is far better than any road I could, I could pick or, or, or any path I could choose. And so, man, God, I know this isn't easy for me to hear about me, but like, man, God, I'm going to engage that. I'm going to confront that. I'm like, I, 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 I refuse to let like sin and shame and darkness like live in my life. I want to follow Jesus. I'm going to take up my cross. It's no longer my, my life that I live. Christ lives in me. Amen? How do you respond to the uncomfortable observations? In fact, if you were to pull up a mirror in front of your face this morning, what could be like an uncomfortable observation that like, the Holy Spirit might share with you? Maybe it's an attitude or a habit. Maybe it's some negativity, some mindsets, some ways of thinking. Maybe it's some things that have burdened you in your life for far too long. Because how you deal with those observations really determines how Christ-like you will eventually become. Would you stand? Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment here? Just bow your heads for a moment here. I want you just to take a minute with God. Would you, just, would you just indulge me and just maybe, maybe open up your hands just right in front of you like this, just as a sign of surrender, okay? This is just a sign of surrender. My hands are open. They're not clenched. When your hands are open, right, you can receive, but you can also give. And so as you're standing here right now before the Lord, I just invite you to just, just talk to God. Say, Lord, is there... Is there is there perhaps an unwanted observation <laughs> that you have of me? And would you just show me what that is right now? 
God, is there, is there a chance there's some things in me that you wanna, you wanna clean house on, that you want to free me from, that you wanna make new? Is there a chance I've been living this life in a way that isn't abundant? It's time for me to like shed some of the burden and some of the weight. And so right now in a room where there is no guilt, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, this isn't a message of guilt and shame in any way. It's a message of freedom. Would you just raise your hand right now if you would say, hey, I feel like, Pastor Jordan, there is today even, there was like some unwanted observations. Like I see some things that are just unwanted. I want it to go. I want it to be gone. I want it to get out once and for all. I'm tired of it. It's an unwanted observation. It's, it's, it's actually preventing you from walking the path, like, you know, uh, this, this, this faith out in a way that, that, man, you really want to. Unwanted observations all across this room right now as hands are raised. And so, Father, I pray in Jesus' name, because there is no other name that matters. There is no other name that is greater. There is no other name that breaks chains, that tears down walls, that sets people free. It is only by the name of Jesus. And so we come under that name today. We use that name. We plead that name right now. God, over every person under the sound of my voice, dealing with some things in themselves that they wish wasn't there, some things in themselves that they wish they were free from. They, they're tired of carrying it. And so we come before the one who lovingly confronts these things in us and sets us free. And so, Lord, I pray for every, every single mindset, every thought that is wrong, every lie that's been believed in Jesus' name. God, every heart that's been twisted and bound up by unforgiveness and bitterness, I speak Jesus over them right now, and I declare freedom in Jesus' name. Every one of us, God, who has struggled to live generously and to give of our life for the kingdom, to serve you, God, I pray right now, just freedom. Like, like take the weight off the back right now in Jesus' name for everything we look at right now as we see ourselves in the mirror, everything we don't like, everything we know doesn't line up with you and how you want us to live. I just speak freedom right now in Jesus' name. There's no shame. There's no guilt in here. You are not loved less because of the things you struggle with. God's love for you does not increase or decrease based on what you do. His love for you is steady based on what he has already done. So God, every assignment of guilt and shame and condemnation in this room right now, we just peel it off the backs of every single person, make them lighter now in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, freedom and health and wholeness and life all across this room right now. I pray your peace to just rest and settle upon every heart in this room right now, oh God. Make us new, change us, change the way that we live. Make us more and more and more and more like you and less like us, God. Show us these unwanted observations, not so we can live in guilt, but so that we can live in freedom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen and amen.